me read to you as we begin out of Psalm 36. Puts all this in context for us. Psalm 36. I'll read verses 7 through 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is a fountain of life. In your light do we see light. We serve a God who is faithful, who has love that is steadfast, that is a pursuing, chasing, unyielding, unrelenting love. It's faithful. And it's to see here that we exist to literally feast our souls on his abundance. And it says that we drink from the river of God's delights. And we've been studying in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the bread of life. And that he is living water. And so we feast on him and we drink from him. We literally find our sustenance, our life in Christ, he is our hope. He is steadfast and his goodness satisfies. And the themes that we see here in Psalm 36 are the exact same themes that we've been considering out of the Gospel of John these last several weeks. And it's fitting that on this day that we, we baptize several of our faith family members that we focus on this gospel of Jesus because baptism is just that, a picture of the gospel. Last week, I preached out of John 11, which we saw the seventh and final signs. And so the way John is organized is you have the first 11 chapters, there's seven signs, the last one being the resurrection of Lazarus. And rather than the religious establishment falling down and worshiping him, which he's worthy of worship. Instead, they plot to kill him. They're done with Jesus after he resurrects Lazarus. We saw that last week. This last sign showing, pointing to Jesus as Messiah and as God in the flesh. Now, in our home groups this last week, we studied John chapter 12. So the way that we kind of roll here at Renewal is that we study the Bible together, and we don't rely on just Sunday morning for our spiritual feeding. We, we encourage people to study the Bible for themselves throughout the week, as well as study it in community in our home groups and also in our discipleship groups. And so in our home groups, so we currently have eight. A few of them are way overflowing with like over 30 people. Like it's insane. Like these small churches meeting in homes. We target 8 to 12 people per home group. Some are way bigger than that. Um, and so we're asking God to help us to multiply because we need more home groups so that we can have more people involved in the community. So if you have been attending regularly or a brand new member, and if you're not in a home group, you're missing out on one of the most significant parts of being part of faith family is sharing your life with other believers. And so in our home groups this last week, we studied John chapter 12. Next, just following through the gospel of John. And just brief recap, those of you that missed home group this week, Mary, who is Lazarus's sister, 
So she was the one that was in tears over his death and saying, Jesus, if only you were here. Well, Jesus then resurrects her brother, Lazarus. And then in chapter 12, you see Lazarus just chilling with Jesus, eating a meal like nothing had happened. And he had just died and his soul had gone to heaven and then called back to his body. And it's just like, I can't even imagine the conversations with Lazarus, what that would have been like. And and yet there he is, hanging out with Jesus, having a meal. And then his sister Mary, who was overwhelmed with just gratitude and joy that Jesus brought her brother back from the dead, she opens a, a perfume. Now, in the ancient world, these perfumes were kept in these like little jars that didn't have a lid or a top. You had to break it open to get the perfume out. And it says that it was worth 300 denarii. Now, a denarii was denarius, was one day's wage. So 300 denarii would be literally an annual salary for just a laborer. And so what's, what's average salary in Bell County? I don't know, around $50,000. And so this jar of perfume was worth about 50K. And she opens it and pours all of it. And using her hair, she anoints the feet of Jesus because he's worthy. And Jesus commends her for her faith and for her love in doing so. And, and then what you get in the next scene in chapter 12 is Palm Sunday. So beginning the last week of Jesus' life, something called Passion Week. And so that begins in John 12, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, and people are waving palm branches. And so that is what's happening. And they're all crying out, Hosanna, and that he is the king. Now, they don't have a clue. They don't understand how, what kind of king Jesus is. They think he's going to overthrow the Roman government and end the occupation. But nonetheless, in their minds, they see him as worthy of being praised in that way. And so they, but without even realizing what they're saying is absolute truth, that he is a king. And he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and the religious leaders are now planning to kill Jesus and even to kill Lazarus. Like, they're just so done with Jesus and the whole world, it says, following him. Jesus then predicts his death and resurrection, showing complete sovereignty, the plan of God, the mode that Jesus is not going to have his life taken. He's going to lay it down willingly to save his people. He predicts it. In John 12. And then what's so amazing is there's this crowd. He just come in during Passover. So there were thousands, likely hundreds of thousands of people crowded in to Jerusalem at Passover. And Jesus is there. And there's a voice from heaven, like an out loud voice. Not like the still small voice we're talking about. I'm talking about like a loud, thundering voice from heaven heaven describing glorifying Jesus and this crowd still doesn't believe that Jesus is Messiah and that he is the son of God which is just like really yes really the hardness of heart is on display in John 12 and the chapter ends with Jesus saying that if you see him you see the Father. That Jesus is the Word of God 
who reveals who God is fully and completely. So then chapter 13 begins. Now chapter 13 through 17, those five chapters are a unit. Sometimes it's called the upper room discourse, if you want to use really big language. It's the conversation that Jesus had with his closest friends, his disciples, when he shared the Passover meal, and he talked about going away, and it's very emotional, and he talks about their hearts not being troubled. He promises to send the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter. He talks about abiding in him. He talks more about the Holy Spirit coming, and then he has this beautiful high priestly prayer in chapter 17. So the, the material in these five chapters is unique to John. You won't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It is unique, and it's first-hand eyewitness accounts because John, who wrote this, was there. He was in the room. So he heard, and he experienced it, and then the Spirit inspired him to write these sections. And so, so it's one section. We'll look at just chapter 13 today. Now, some of you are thinking you know what time it is? And he's like just getting started. So this is, this is going to, like, we're not going to make it. Yes, we will. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to do a, a full-length sermon. So just breathe, relax. We have to be gone by 1230 anyway because that's our contract with the school. Like, by 1230, we have to leave. They have to set up for tomorrow for school. We will, we'll make it, I promise. I, I, it, I won't go as long as normal. But I do want us to look at John 13 because it's so important. It's a critical section that begins, and it's so intimate, and it shows the absolutely astounding, like, far-reaching, radical love of God. And it happens with a Passover meal. So if you've been tracking in John, this is now the third time that we've seen it mentioned Passover. So we know that Jesus had a three-year ministry because we see three Passovers in John. That's very helpful. If, if you read just the other Gospels, you wouldn't know that it was three years. But John helps us to understand that. And so let's begin by reading John 13, and then I will make some application, and then we'll see how God wants us to respond in light of this. So John 13. And as we're reading this, the theme that we're seeing here is the absolute radical love of Jesus, this overwhelming, relentless, unyielding love of Jesus. It's truly even shocking and far-reaching. And so let's read about his radical love, John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing to you, 
you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for, I, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you were my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you have denied me three times. Our Father in heaven, as we approach this text, it's overwhelming. Left to ourselves, we're no better than Judas. Left to ourselves, we are blind and foolish and selfish and reject your love and betray you and deny you. Left to ourselves, we are broken and blind and evil and dirty. And you, what we see in this text is overwhelming with your love, Jesus, and how you make us clean. Too, we're just so needy and just dependent and desperate on you. So we just ask that you would speak in these few moments that we have together, this time that we have set apart for you that is holy. Speak to us and grip our hearts. May we see you high and lifted up, magnified as you are, and experience your love. Oh, Jesus, thank you for loving us. We are so unworthy. But you are worthy. So we just ask that you would do a mighty work in our hearts today for your glory. What we see in this text truly is an overwhelming, radical love. And it kind of builds on last. We talked about God's love from John 11. Um, and, and we see it fleshed out further here in John 13. So just let me give you three truths as quickly as I can with our time that we have remaining about this radical love of Jesus. Number one, it is a redeeming love. So the radical love of Jesus is a redeeming love. How do I know that it's a redeeming love? Because if I ever mention a point from the Bible, you should be able to see it for yourself. And now I'm not making it up. It has to come from the text. And so why do I say that it is a redeeming love? Well, we saw in verse 1, it says, Jesus loved his own. It says he loved them to the end. Now that word end, teleos in, in the Greek, it means finished or completed. And so when it says that he loved them to the end, he loved them to the finish, to the completion. He would use the same word later in the same gospel of John when he was hanging on the cross, choking on his own blood, and he is dying. And right before he gives his spirit up to the Father, Jesus cried something out. What did he say? It is finished. It is ended. It is completed. I have accomplished everything the Father has sent me here to do. Redemption is won. The price has been 
paid. The record of debt has been nailed to the cross. And so when he says that he's loved them to the finish, it should remind you of the cross. That's why he uses that same language. So what you're seeing here in John 13 is pointing to the work on the cross where Jesus would purchase our redemption. In verse 3, we see that he has all authority. It says that God has, it says the Father has given all things into his hands. When the Bible says that God has given all things into the hands of Jesus, what do you think that means? It means all things. Like that's what it says. It says all things. It, it, what it means is that he has complete control and absolute sovereignty. It means that he is the king of the universe, that he is a creator and the sustainer and the redeemer. And he is the king of glory and he is worthy of our allegiance and our obedience, of our loyalty, of our affections, of our finances, of our children, of our marriages, of your career, of your thoughts. He is worthy of all things. All things. He has complete authority. And so this king of glory, who has absolute sovereignty, it says that he did something. Now, what would he who has infinite glory and is, has all things in his hands, all authority, what, does, what do you think he would do? Like based upon our own human wisdom or knowledge in our own sinful nature, we would think that he would want to establish his kingdom and be adored by, by millions of people. But you know what he does? It says, so he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he gets down on his knees. Now, when it says their outer garments, maybe you picture, oh, he took off like just like his jacket and he still had his clothes on. No, he took his clothes off and is describing he was wearing a loincloth. That's all he was wearing. He was, he was wearing very little. And in, in that cultural context, men did not show their bodies. Like, it's not like today where you go to the beach, especially if, if there's Europeans there, man. Oh, dude. <laughs> Living in the global place, it was the craziest thing because you would see the Arabs that would go to, like, the beach fully covered, like, head, toe, like, every covered in the water. Like, like really? Yes, Really? And then, and then you have the Brazilians there. And it was like, oh, well, look over here, kids. Because like, they, don't, they, don't, they don't wear very many clothes. And um, Americans are reasonable. They wear boxer shorts. It's not Speedos. And so that was always, you know, it was respectable. Um, in that Jewish mindset, you don't show your body. Because the word for naked and the word for shame is the same word. Which is why even modern day, Middle Eastern mindset, they don't show their nakedness. They don't show their body because to them that is shameful. And I don't think they're totally wrong in all of their thinking. But I digress. 
for Jesus to take off his clothes, be wearing a loincloth and to wrap a towel around him and get on his hands and his feet and to then begin to wash the feet of his disciples, understand something. That in the ancient world, only the lowest of servants, the slaves, would actually wash people's feet. And so if you notice, it said, after dinner, Jesus washed their feet. That's actually out of sequence. The correct sequence is you arrive at someone's house and you're the guest, and immediately you have the lowest servant would come in and would wash your feet because roads were dusty and it was worse than just dust. They had, like, they didn't have running water, sorry. Um, And so the roads were pretty dirty beyond just dirt, like, excrement and animal waste and it was just not that not that sanitary and so by the time that you would get to someone's house your feet really weren't all that clean now maybe your body was clean but your feet were not clean so immediately the lowest of servants would come in get down and wash your feet to honor you as the guest but here you have the disciples and they've eaten and no one washed their feet like that's actually kind of gross like that's supposed to happen, but it didn't happen because it was just Jesus and his disciples, and there were no lowly servants in the room, and disciples weren't going to do it. The disciples weren't going to get on their hands and feet and wash someone. Like, they weren't going to do that. That was like beneath them, and so no one did it. It didn't happen. The feet weren't clean. And so Jesus stands up, takes his clothes off, gets a towel around him, and then what he does is he begins to show us something, to show us this redeeming love. Because you know who washed feet? Slaves. Those slave work. And do you know what the word redemption even means? The word to redeem or redemption price, it means the price paid to set a slave free. So you see Jesus here taking the position of a servant, of a slave, who would then pay the price to set other slaves, like you and me, slaves to sin, to set us free with his own blood. Jesus is showing an absolutely shocking, radical love. And he's offering us mercy. This is a picture. It's a symbol of his saving grace, which is why when Peter says, no, you can't wash my feet, Jesus says, really? Are you sure? Are you sure you don't want me to wash you? Because if I don't wash you, you're dirty. Your soul, your heart, your whole person is dirty. You have no part with me if I don't wash you. You can't wash yourself. Religion tells you that you take these steps and try to wash yourself, but the gospel is very clear. You can't wash yourself. You can't clean yourself up. And so we think to ourselves, okay, I need to get back in church. I need to be a good person or turn over a new leaf. And and I'm going to go ahead and make myself presentable and clean myself so that then I can then approach God. That was Peter's thinking. 
And Jesus says, you can't wash yourself to Peter. You have to let me wash you. Only I can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So what you're seeing here is the very gospel that is on display. And he calls them clean. He's like, Peter, you're already clean. I've already cleaned you. You're trusting in me. Let me show you. Receive my grace on my terms, not on your terms. Oftentimes, we want to receive God's grace on our terms, our way. And he says, no, you receive my mercy on my terms. That's what you're seeing here is him displaying his redeeming love. It's a picture of his mercy to wash us and to save us from our sin. And so we see his redeeming love. Second, we see that his love is a regenerating love. So regeneration is the word there. So to regenerate. Why do I say that this is pointing to a regenerating love? Well, because the Old Testament had lots of different, we don't have time to get into it today, I wish we did, but you can look it up. There were all kinds of rituals in the Old Testament on being made clean. And, and so all of these Old Testament ways where you would go and be made like ceremonially clean were pointing to a problem that left to ourselves, we are unclean. Left to ourselves, we are dirty. And so we need to be made clean. And so God had all these laws in the Old Testament. But see, here's the problem. Can physical water clean your soul? No. No ritual can clean you. No religion, no, no attempt in your own power, not trying to be a good person, the power of positive thinking, the, the giving up positive vibes, or I'm spiritual, just not religious, like any of all this other stuff that exists today. All these other worldviews that say, you're okay, you're fine, you're clean, don't worry about it. There's all of these religious bigots and on the extreme radical right or however we're described and they want to cancel us. The Bible is clear that we cannot clean ourselves, but we need to be made clean. The law had no power to change Hearts. We, we can't make ourselves want something that we don't really want. Like, you can't make yourself. If, if you don't like something, you don't like it. Like, you can try it and maybe you'll like it. But if you're like, yep, I've tried it, not into it, don't like it, don't want it, then your heart doesn't like it. But the problem with us when it comes to spirituality, it's that our hearts don't actually want Jesus, we don't want him. We don't want his glory. We want our own sin. So we need a new heart. That's the whole point. Why do you think here it says that he's giving us a new commandment? Who gave the first commandment? This is verse 34. This is a new commandment, a new law I give you. Who gave the first law? Moses at Mount Sinai. He gave the law. He gave the Ten Commandments. But then beyond that, so he gave the law. And in the law, that also included these rituals for being made clean. And Jesus says, I've already made you clean. I've given you a new heart. You've been recreated with a new nature. So Jesus here is saying that he's essentially the new Moses who is giving new laws. 
And what is this new Moses giving us? Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to also love one another. So what is new about this new commandment? Well, the commandment is not new. Love God was always there. Love others, that's always been, and that's not new. But you know what is new about it? We have new hearts. New ability, a new nature. And we ourselves have been made new. The old is gone. The new has come. That's what baptism is all about. Baptism is the picture of how we have been made new new. It's powerful. It's absolutely stunning. And it points to the work only Jesus can accomplish. And so when Jesus says, I don't need to wash your whole body because you're already clean, except for one of you, Judas, who had rejected the love of Jesus and was on his dark path, which was a demonic and a very evil path but he rejected the love of Jesus. The others in the room had received the love of Jesus. And so when he says, I have to wash your feet only because the rest of you is already clean, he was talking about sanctification, this ongoing process of being renewed, of growing. And so even though maybe you are made new, you are a believer, you have a new nature, you still have to continue to pursue Jesus to keep your eyes fixed on him to keep growing, keep depending on him. You need community. You can't do this alone. And so if you're new or if you're just visiting today, what I want you to know most is that Renewal Church, what we're all about here, it's about following Jesus, sharing our lives together. That's what we're about. It's enjoying Jesus, worshiping him together together. And in the process, we can then bring his renewal to Bill County and to the world. And so we have Jesus who gives us a redeeming love, but also a regenerating love where he makes us new. So understand something about this foot washing scene in John 13. It is not just an example to follow. Because if it were just that, we'd all be doomed. It's not. Well, it is an example, but it's more. It's a new heart. It's the power to do it. It's the empowering through his spirit to actually do it. And so he, we share his new nature that we receive by faith. So is that you? With all of your heart, are you truly trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation? Or are you trusting in your religious activity? You heard it today from different people. I was so thankful to hear David's testimony that for 40 years he grew up in the church as a child, came to faith, so he thought was baptized. And then just a few months ago in a worship gathering here, he realized it was not real to me. And I'm so thankful for David and what he means to his faith family and him being so real about that. But maybe there's others of you in the room that if you're honest, you've been doing the religious, the church thing for a long time and trying to do the foot washing and serve others in your own strength. And if you're honest, you're empty, you're exhausted, you're burned out, and you're doubting. 
and your soul is so hungry for something real. Jesus, Jesus offers us a redeeming and a regenerating love. Lastly, as we close, he gives us a reaching love. So this reaching, as in a reaching out, far-reaching love. So he loves us with his, his regenerating and redeeming love so that we can then reach his love, reach it and extend it to other people. So it says in verse 35, he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have good theology together. Right? It says, you'll all know that the Father sent me if you have lots of programs. The world will know that Jesus is God in the flesh. How? If we love one another. It is not about the big buildings. It is not about the programs. It is not about our own pride or ego. It is about us loving each other. The very love of Jesus that we then can extend to the world. There are people in this county, in this city, that are in darkness. And they need to know God's love. And Jesus loves us so that we can then reach out to those who are just far from him. And so this means that we need to have unity as a faith family, be united among, around Christ and his gospel, and not feud over secondary issues, but to be focused on who Jesus is and making more disciples, extending this love because this church, we are starving for it, but it's not just us. People in this city are starving for Jesus' love. People across the planet are starving for the love of Jesus. And so, Renewal Church, we are part of something much greater than ourselves. We are part of God's purpose to extend his love and to have a multitude that no one can number of every tribe, nation, and tongue together that have all experienced love, and are praising him because he is worth it. And so I pray that when people see this church and they, they see what we're about, may they say, look at how they love one another. It's just, that's just crazy. How People driving in the snow to go fix someone else's busted pipe in the middle of the night? People driving in the snow and risking their own health to take a fellow member to the hospital who fell and broke his wrist. People risking themselves and, and their own comfort by hosting several families in their house because they had power and others in the faith family did not. Like, I'm so thankful for this snowpocalypse. Yes, I had five days of no power, and I don't, I mean, I didn't enjoy that part, but man an opportunity for the church to actually be the church and to see this faith family step up and extend the love of God to each other the way that I saw it has been absolutely humbling. So I just want to say, I want to encourage you. So don't, don't hear this as a hammering sermon. Like, I want to encourage you 
to go do this more. May your love be abounding more and more. Because we need it. We need God's love and our city needs it and the nations need it. And the glory of Jesus is worth it. And he deserves it.